The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. to the pod doctors i'm dr damien dauphiné and i'm here with my partner dr rafa hussein hi hello we are going to uh, do a discussion about tarsal tunnel syndrome um wanted to just highlight some of the stuff that we talked about in the covid uh episode there's some information about the vaccine that i think we wanted to get out there as well just to add to that um essentially the idea that the current vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines that are out there are extraordinarily effective. And I think there's still some strange idea that, you know, if they're only 95% effective, which is unreal, yeah. that, that somehow that's bad, that the 5%, you know, died. You know, in the 33,000 people that, that took the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines in their preliminary studies, only one of them ended up in the ICU. Yeah. So I think the, the moral of the story is, is if you get the vaccine, your body's going to be producing antibodies to this particular virus, and your body's going to be prepared to attack it if you come in contact with it or if you get exposed. And that's, that's really the key. Uh, if it keeps you out of the ICU, keeps you off the ventilator, the chances are you're going to survive. And yeah. that's really what we're looking for. I mean, 4,000 plus people are dying every day in the United States because they don't have antibodies to this virus. People talk about the uh, effects of getting the vaccine. They may get flu-like symptoms, some body ache. But that's with most vaccines in general. Your body's causing an immune response. Right. The vaccine, if you can imagine it, is just a bunch of dead virus cells. They're uh, surface markers. And your body is making the immune system the build up to recognize those markers so whenever you do get infected by the true virus an active virus that your body already has the defense system that you need to actually fight off this infection right and i think we all need to be extraordinarily happy and joyous that that we've been able to move these two vaccines through the process as quickly as we have to have it be proven to be extraordinarily safe yeah. and uh, extraordinarily effective probably one of the most effective vaccines we've ever 
had access to, which is remarkable. So just wanted to make sure we put that out into the universe because I still think there are some folks that are questioning whether or not they want to get the vaccine for whatever reason. And these aren't even anti-vaxxer yeah. folks. These just are normal people. Normal people that, that have some concerns, but I think they may be... I think be... the fear is that it came out so quickly. And right. people don't realize every year we have a new strain of the flu vaccine that comes out because the, the flu vaccine is uh, active to that strain of flu virus that right. is... Uh, Most prevalent common, that year right. that's going to be expected that year right. so each year uh, we get that vaccine the the flu shot works um it's been tried and true it's been proven well and people are like well why haven't we cured cancer why are we able to fight this and i don't know how to explain it to them that cancer and the covid vaccine and the flu vaccine and i mean we've eliminated polio i mean there's so smallpox. much smallpox i know and, I mean, smallpox and, is a perfect example yeah. smallpox killed millions of people and it's it's been eradicated from the planet. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's some conspiracy theorists that would say <laughs> that somebody's hanging on to it somewhere. That may be the case. But for the most part, <clears throat> you know, that's that's a disease that killed millions of people that we eradicated. And, yeah. and we did that with through vaccinations and through a very aggressive vaccination program. So anyway, we'll, we, we'll get off that subject for the moment. But uh, I just, you know, I've been vaccinated. I think you're about to get vaccinated. Yep. So... Um, you know, it's very important. I, th- I think it's one of the ways that we're going to stop the spread, clearly, herd immunity. I think the other was clearly stated in our last episode on rapid testing. I think that's still yeah. extremely important, obviously, too. But we are today going to talk uh, one of my favorite subjects, tarsal tunnel syndrome. So thanks for putting together some some slides to kind of give us some guidance here. So um, tarsal tunnel syndrome, very similar to carpal tunnel syndrome, except of the ankle. Imagine it like the nerve that's coming down to your foot, the one that innervates the bottom part of your foot, is getting impinged, just like your carpal tunnel. You have a tarsal tunnel where muscles, uh, arteries, veins, nerves um, course around. And that tarsal nerve, your posterior tibial nerve, it gets impinged. Um, so signs and symptoms, things that you will correlate with tarsal tunnel syndrome, tingling numbness to the bottom of the foot, stocking glove distribution, a moccasin distribution, whatever you want to call it, uh, electric type of sensation. Well, this this specifically, though, wouldn't have a moccasin or a stocking glove distribution if it's just the tibial nerve. Oh, that's true, so, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, uh, you're, you're, think, you're thinking more uh, clearly polyneuropathy. But you've got a nice picture, this upper right-hand picture. The area of pain and numbness is that darker color there, which is the medial arch, the plantar aspect of the foot, you know, that's where the tibial nerve is innervating the skin. So that's where you're going to see that distribution. But you can have all kinds of pretty crazy descriptions of this. Burning, tingling, shooting pain being being one. Also, people can have very similar symptoms to, to plantar fasciitis, which yeah. uh, can be frustrating and hard to understand for, for some folks. So the anatomy is important, obviously. Yeah. So you've, you've got a great uh, anatomic drawing here um, from the, the team Atlas of Anatomy. Showing the Tom, Dick, and Harry tibialis posterior, the flexor digitorum longus, uh, the tibial nerve, and the artery, and it's uh, venae comitantes running along with the tibial nerve. So it is the tibial nerve. It's actually you know there's no anterior tibial nerve, so there you don't need to use posterior if you if you don't want to. It's just uh, it's sort of a, a common common thing people do. The real issue is all the stuff traveling through the tarsal tunnel can all become problematic for this particular nerve. And so you've got some great slides coming up that show some of these things that can go wrong. So generally the anatomy, um, what we're looking for when we end up going to treat this, 
just like you said, the, the tendons that come down and the, uh, the nerve that courses along there. And we'll talk about how all of those play a part in causing tarsal tunnel syndrome. Because it could be, you know, a variety of things. It could be uh, varicose veins. It could be a space-occupying lesion. could be a low-line muscle belly. Where the, low the muscle, muscle belly. Yeah, muscle belly it should stop above the tunnel and become just a tendon. And there are cases that we see not infrequently where the muscle literally comes all the way down into the tarsal tunnel and is taking up space in the tunnel, and that can be problematic. So It could be the tendon sheath causing a ganglion or the joint causing mm-hmm. a ganglion. Um, or it just could be uh, scar tissue, just some physical impingement from the uh, flexor retinaculum and or the abductor uh, septum. Posterior tibial nerve or the tibial nerve comes down and splits up into many branches. So sometimes it might not be the tibial nerve specifically. It could be just a branch off of that tibial nerve. And that's what you look into. We see if uh, you know it's a specific nerve. So here's a little diagram showing the medial and lateral uh, branches off the posterior tibial nerve. And also, the, I know they call this the tibial nerve, but this is your Baxter's nerve or your, your medial calcaneal nerve or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the first branch of the lateral plantar nerve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you can see that we have a pretty nice distribution there showing you know the primary sensory function out to the skin for the medial plantar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve. Medial plantar nerve taking up most of that, that space. you got a little arch patch that's mediated by the saphenous. Uh, the saphenous nerve is, is not very commonly involved. There really isn't an entrapment site for that except up in the thigh. And it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's one that you have to keep an eye out for if the patient's had any surgery along that nerve. But primarily, you know, you're looking at the heel fat pad innervated by the tibial nerve and then the majority of the plantar aspect of the foot being innervated by both medial and lateral plantar branches of the tibial nerve. And that's when we'll do our physical exam. Whenever a patient comes in, they'll say we have some numbness, tingling, burning sensation uh, along those nerves. Sometimes um, it feels like they're like walking on sand, paresthesias even, just like when you have neuropathy. So we'll test, you know, using our monofilament, um, seeing if the uh, distribution is along a specific nerve branch or if it's the whole tibial nerve. It kind of gives us an idea if we have to worry about uh, later when we talk about the portapedis. Uh, if we have to go, you know, deeper and release it there, if we're worried about um, a specific nerve having like a schwannoma or an impingement of some type, but, you know, keeping the anatomy in mind. So we can sense. test the monofilament. We can use Wartenberg wheel, which is a pinwheel yeah. that can measure sharp sensation. We can also use ethyl chloride to measure yeah. cold. Those are all going to give you different aspects of what your peripheral nervous system uh, is providing from a data standpoint. So etiology, what actually um, causes the tarsal tunnel impingement? So here are the three or four most common reasons that you get tarsal tunnel syndrome, uh, an anatomic variant, and we'll go through each of these specifically, biomechanical, space-occupying lesion, and then your double crutch, which is becoming more and more popular. More, more and more apparent, I think, yeah. I mean, diabetic patients get carpal tunnel syndrome about yeah. 30% yeah. more frequently than non-diabetic, so it makes sense that diabetic patients would be at risk for nerve entrapments in the lower extremity to roughly the same degree. It's that thing where they showed that if there's uh, studies out and they're over 20 years old, after about 20 years, that's when it starts catching uh, the eye of the vast majority of docs out there. It's just, um, it, it takes, takes time for people takes to realize. It takes 20 to 30 years to change dogma yeah. in medicine, which is unfortunate, but just the way it goes. So we were talking about uh, anatomic variants, which I think are 
extremely common. There are patients who don't have diabetes, who don't yeah. have any sort of trauma to the area, haven't had surgery in the area, and why are they getting tarsal tunnel syndrome? A lot of times it is an anatomic variant where either the entire tibial nerve itself or a portion of the tibial nerve is, is being impinged upon. And so this is showing anatomic variants from the standpoint of the different branching patterns of the tibial nerve, which can have an impact. Uh, I think if you have a high branching of the calcaneal and the medial lateral plantar nerves, that typically takes up more space in the tunnel. Yeah. If you have a very low branching pattern where it's almost all the way through the tunnel before it branches, pretty much branching at the portipedis level, yeah. that's usually a, a more narrow, narrow a, a thinner tibial nerve all the way through the tunnel. So it's got less less opportunity to get entrapped. So we do see that from time to time. Oh, that can't feel good. Yeah, so oh. just like Dr. D said, the uh, side of impingement, um, most commonly at the tarsal tunnel, right. and you know the variation of the branching can play a huge part. So the tarsal tunnel, its purpose is to hold everything in place. Uh, you have your flexors, uh, the long flexor tendons, the nerves, the veins, and the arteries coming back through there. And it's the roof of the tarsal tunnel. Uh, when you come down, the abductor hallucis makes up the, the base. The, the portipedis makes up the, uh, the other half of the, the tunnel. So the, you're, reason you're, the base of your tunnel is really bone, though. Oh, I mean, yeah, if you yeah. Look if at, you're talking yeah, about the yeah, right. other, other side. Exactly. And then the portipedis is kind of the portal into the foot. That's what portipedis means. And that's where you've got the larger tunnel becoming two smaller tunnels and three smaller tunnels if you include the calcaneal nerve and that's really an area that gets sometimes ignored the studies from the 60s on tarsal tunnel surgery were showing maybe a 60 or 65 percent good to excellent outcome yeah that's not great and one of the reasons was they used a a no touch technique where they didn't want to touch the nerve they didn't want to manipulate the nerve and all they did was release the flexor retinaculum, probably took 15 minutes. Yeah. But you were going to miss a significant percentage of patients that had entrapment sites outside of just that narrow little flexor retinaculum. So when you're talking about recurrent tarsal tunnel after surgery. Or failed surgery. Just or, yes, completely failed, failed, failed surgery. A significant percentage of those patients who probably would have benefited from the technique we use today, yeah. which is a four compartment release that's very specific, takes much longer to do but is much more effective because I think yeah. our good to excellent outcomes from this surgery are in the 85 to 90% range. Yeah. And nerve surgeries are not for the faint of heart. So uh, 85 to 90 plus is phenomenal. That's that's a great outcome. You know, even the folks that you're not sure are going to benefit from the surgery because they've had long-standing disease, they've had long-standing problems with it. Um, we've still found a benefit for those folks as well. So it's not something that you get past a certain point and they'll never benefit from it. Yeah. Uh, we've had patients who've had symptoms for years and years and have benefited from decompressing that nerve and those branches. So, Yeah. So here's a picture of the portipedis that Dr. D was talking about. This is the abductor muscle belly uh, and the fiber septums that make up the, um, the walls of the tunnel that the medial, lateral, and calcaneal branches of the uh, tibial nerve uh, course through. That's a great picture. You know, showing a, a fairly typical distribution. That's a fairly typical yeah. branching pattern right there. So you'd go through and you'd release all of these. Am yes. I correct? Yes. I feel like I'm asking you like I've never done this before. But, yeah. But just yeah. to just to bring it out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're releasing those so that fibrous septum 
uh, once removed, now those nerves have some extra space, extra give. And then if I'm correct, you typically wrap your nerves. I know I do. Yeah. I, I think it's a good idea. Um, anytime you violated that number of fascial planes to get down yeah. to a nerve, you're probably going to lead to scar tissue and potential problems. So, yeah, we typically wrap this with... Prevent either, adhesions. Yeah, either with umbilical cord or porcine submucosa, which is, uh, you know, going to last a little longer. But I like umbilical cord to wrap these nerves because it's providing growth factors. Um, and I think that's a nice yeah, uh, push side benefit. Faster. Sure, yeah. Here's the biomechanical portion of tarsal tunnel syndrome. So pronation, the whole flat foot conversation that we've had before. So when your foot, as it collapses, it actually stretches that flexor retinaculum, that retinaculum that's coming through here. And if that stays um, stretched or tight, or the continuous um, tension on that flexor retinaculum as your foot flattens out and stretches and stretches, causes that tightness, that scarring, and that can also cause um, tarsal tunnel syndrome. So some of the early treatments that we start off with, we'll start off with some insoles. I mean, it seems silly, and insoles don't fix everything, but a good set of orthotics to help prevent that pronation is a good way to take some of that stress off that tarsal tunnel. Especially if you have a patient who is describing their pain as getting worse during the day. Yeah. That There's two things that I start thinking of. One is there's a biomechanical part of this. The other would be someone who has significant venous uh, disease. They've got varicose veins, yeah. and the veins are becoming engorged and putting pressure on the nerve, and that's getting worse during the day. So if they say, yeah, it doesn't bother me in the morning, but then by the afternoon, I'm like getting burning, tingling, shooting pain, numbness. That's could be either one of those cases, and sometimes both. So that's something you need to keep in mind for sure. Yeah, so just like Dr. D said, varicose veins. I think this is probably one of the most uh, common reasons for tarsal tunnel impingement. Uh, that was varicose veins become engorged. They hold that fluid there. They take up space in that tarsal tunnel, pressing against that nerve, causing that tingling numbness yeah. in the bottom of the feet. They become a space-occupying lesion, absolutely. Yeah. And you can sometimes see them balloon out incredibly, yeah. and these big balloons are clearly causing impingement on the nerve. And the nice thing is, you can release the fascia, you can decompress the nerve, and sometimes we will tie off those varicosities. Sometimes yeah. we won't because now they can pooch out towards the skin and they're not being completely enclosed with the nerve. You're going to get pain relief. So. Yeah. Simple, effective, works mm. great. Another common space-occupying lesion is a schwannoma. Sure. And this is actually your picture. Yeah, that was a, a case we did several years ago. Um, they're not that unusual, you know, it's essentially a benign tumor of the Schwann cells around uh, around the nerve, and you can dissect them out and not cause damage to the nerve itself, which is I'm grateful for because if you had to pick that out of the actual interior of the nerve, it would be much harder to do. But these are usually lying on top of the nerve yeah. and can be excised without causing tremendous trauma to the nerve itself. But you can diagnose them with an MRI. That's a great use if you palpate something, you know, you might feel that marble. Yeah. Uh, it's always a good idea to get an MRI to rule out some of these lesions, especially if people have been worked up by now other the, docs and no one really knows what's going on. It's a good idea to get so an MRI. Sometimes I'll have a patient come in, they have their primary care doctor, uh, get an MRI, and they tell me that they don't see anything, even though they have tarsal tunnel syndrome. Right. You can't diagnose. Yeah. 
traditional tarsal tunnel syndrome with an MRI, you're, it's not. You're not going to see the varicose veins. You're not going to see any of that stuff. It's tough. It's slices tough. are too thin. Uh, they can be too wide, too wide, and not narrow yeah. enough to see everything. But I think, you know, also the the issue is, are you using that test to determine who would benefit from surgery? And that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, unless you're doing MR neuroradiography, which is possible, but yeah. it's usually only available in the ivory towers of medicine. We're talking, you know, university systems where they've got MR radiologists that are are so amazing that they can tweak their own parameters and really highlight nerves in a way that we just don't have access to all the time out yeah. in the burbs. So there can be some pretty amazing MR nerve studies that are pretty amazing at, at finding pathology. But, but for the 99%? No, it's just not something we use. So in the similar fashion, the nerve conduction and, and electromyograms, the NCV EMGs, we use them to rule out other things Sometimes they can be done effectively, and if you use the inching technique where you're taking those electrodes and you're inching your way down the nerve, you can find where that entrapment is. Yeah. But it takes a very experienced neurotechnician or neurologist slash physical medicine rehab specialist, whoever's doing the test, to be able to elicit that kind of information. But when you find one of these guys that's that good at doing them, they can provide tremendous information and literally isolate exactly where the nerve is entrapped in the tunnel, which is fantastic. But the tough part about tarsal tunnel is that it's not always going to stay impinged. Like if you had like varicose veins or if it's biomechanical. No, but you'll get slowing. You'll see slowing. You'll see slowing across that impingement site. So it'll be normal above. It'll be abnormal below. And you'll see that slowing. Uh, You can get electromyogram fibrillation. Again, we talked about this with regard to the back looking at lumbar issues to try to rule out the lumbar aspect of what may be causing their pain in the foot and ankle. You can find muscles that are innervated by the tibial nerve will be going through some fibrillation and you'll see background electrical activity that shouldn't be there in cases of tarsal tunnel syndrome. Um, it's, it's possible, but these are advanced cases. Yeah. These are cases pretty far down the line. Space occupying lesions, uh, ganglion cysts. So we were talking about how the tendon sheets and the joints can uh, outpouch and cause a, a ganglion cyst, which can uh, cause impingement. Yeah, we see them synovial cysts from the joint or ganglionic cysts coming from a tendon sheath. You've got all those tendons running with the nerve. It's not difficult to imagine how that could be a problem. And that's a great MR of several of them lying either in the tunnel or on top of the tunnel. Or yeah, yep. <clears throat> so the nerve clearly doesn't like getting squeezed. <laughs> And you're going to get burning, tingling, and numbness, uh, which can be addressed by just removing that ganglion. So diabetes and the double crush theory. I mean... uh, Yeah, this is being studied uh, right now at UT Southwestern down in Dallas. There are folks in the plastics department that are looking at this with an entire group of physicians and, and a number of different specialties to look at the effectiveness of nerve decompression in these cases and why is it effective. Uh, this to goes find. back to what you said, how uh, diabetic patients are more prone to getting carpal tunnel syndrome. Right. Uh, we talked about this before in our diabetes lecture where it's been shown now that with uh, uncontrolled diabetes or long-standing diabetes that your collagen fibers end up cross-linking. They end up uh, becoming more and more stiff rather than elastic. So something that's supposed to be elastic going over a nerve versus something that's stiff that's going over a nerve 
And there's a good source of uh, impingement right there. And when you combine that with the sorbitol pathway and what yeah. we think is happening to the nerve, where the nerve is getting enlarged and getting swollen, you got a nerve that's bigger than it should be. Again, we showed this. We had a paper published in 2005 in the Journal of the American Podiatric Medical Association looking at ultrasound images of the tibial nerve getting cross-sections. And in patients who had diabetes but no neuropathic complaints, and in non-diabetics, their nerves were about the same size. It was about 12 millimeters squared. Yeah. And in the diabetic patients who had significant neuropathic pain, it was two, sometimes three times the normal size. Yeah. So we're talking 24, 25 millimeters squared. So you got a nerve that's getting that large, going through a tunnel that's getting stiff. That combination is clearly going to drive burning, tingling, numbness, you know, all the symptoms that people are complaining uh, of. I forgot what those noodles are called. Those Asian thick noodles, udon noodles, the real thick ones. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's, I was talking to uh, one of the reps, his name is Drew, and, um, one time we were in there and I was like, oh my God, this doesn't look like, you know, your normal spaghetti type nerve, you know, like the, it looks like a, an udon noodle. I mean, they're significant. I mean, yeah. you can. And you'll you see can, them, you'll see the nerve get yellowed and almost look like fat. Yeah. Uh, almost a fat degenerative nerve, which is really unusual because the nerve should be white and glistening and tightly packed. It's a very beautiful structure yeah. when you see them in surgery. Um, these are the larger nerves we're talking about. So tibial nerve, the perineal or fibular nerve. But in diabetes, they get yellowed and mushy. That's yeah. a technical term. Okay. And and they just don't look normal. And yeah, they don't look healthy anymore. No, and sometimes it's difficult to, to actually find them in layers of fat that look yeah. yellow and mushy. So uh, it can be a bit of a challenge. And that's one of the reasons why when we do these surgeries, we use an intraoperative EMG. So we're actually zapping the nerve while I got we're a doing picture surgery. right there. Yeah, that's really great. So this is the nerve integrity monitor uh, from Medtronic that we use to basically get real-time nerve function data while we're operating on that particular nerve. Yeah. So we're putting those electrodes in the abductor hallucis muscle in the foot and on the other side of the foot in the abductor digiti minimi to measure the medial plantar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve. To make sure that you've released the nerve enough. That's one of the uses. Another use is just to find the nerve if it's someone who's had multiple surgeries and has mm. lots of scar tissue and you're, yeah, you're just cases. trying to figure out, okay, where the heck is the nerve? We know where it should be, but sometimes with scar tissue, it can be very hard to identify it. And you can use this device to zap the tissues and you'll get a different audible signal. It'll sound different. And then you'll also see on a screen, you'll see the, the actual waveform. <laughs> Check that's that's fantastic so here's a, a pre and post uh, yeah. decompression sure yep with 20 milliamps so you got abductor uh hallucis that was showing 768 microvolts pre decompression at 20 milliamps and so the 20 milliamps is the stimulus and the output is the 768 microvolts and then after the decompression you can see you now your abductor hallucis is registering it's uh it's at 5,000 or 6,168 microvolts. Yeah. So that's a significant improvement. That would be a, a, hu a huge benefit to the patient. So, you know, five or six-fold change. So that that's not unusual. And when we see that, it's very helpful. This is actually from Jim Anderson's work. So Anderson, uh, Jim Anderson in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, has been doing some studies on using this technique and actually publishing on it. Some of the first papers to be published on using it in this way, uh, I believe, worldwide. So 
So, I mean, that's pretty much it for tarsal tunnel syndrome um, as far as... I think some of the other things that we need to keep in mind would be that you can have both plantar fasciitis and oh, tarsal yeah. tunnel. Yeah, they're uh, not exclusive. No, not at all. And you, you Just can like have both. neuropathy and tarsal tunnel syndrome. They're not exclusive. Right. Uh, you got to tease that out again. If it's purely weight-bearing pain and they don't have any pain when they're not on it, you have to be thinking more plantar fasciitis. Although you can still have a component of tarsal tunnel in the background. Yeah. So what do you do in those cases? Well, you, you do all the same things that you would typically do for plantar fasciitis. You get them stretching. You get them into orthotics. You get them maybe using some anti-inflammatories. Get them in the right shoes. And if you hear things like, I just started using my custom orthotics, but it's making my heel pain worse, Yeah, boom, that's a red flag. So maybe temporarily while they're breaking them in, but yeah, if, if it's consistent, they're like, no, I can't even use these things. These things are terrible. I can't. Boom. What may be happening is the arch support and the heel cup are putting just enough pressure on the portapedis that it's making the tarsal tunnel component of this worse. Yeah. So you've got one fix causing a worsening problem someplace else. So th in those cases, uh, we, we will often do a tarsal tunnel release and either a topaz or, or, uh, or, or what's the other one, the 10X of the plantar fascia or release the plantar fascia and the tarsal tunnel at the same time. And those folks actually do quite well. Yeah. Now, do you do the endoscopic technique for tarsal tunnel? Uh, I I have, but I'm not a huge fan of it. You're not it, able to get to the portapedis well, I think uh, because as good as you'd want to. I do so many redos of other people's work yeah. that the virgin territory tarsal tunnel that comes through the door is far less frequent than the one who's been operated on a couple of times. Yeah. So I think if I was doing just purely... Virgin territory, no one's ever done any surgery on the patient, and that was all the tarsal tunnel syndrome I, I was dealing with, I would probably expand my horizons with the endoscopic technique a little bit more yeah. because I think it could be helpful. But if they've had surgery before, it's just almost impossible to do. I think it's really tricky. You yeah. really need to open this up and be able to see this. And and so it's a good 10 or 12 centimeter incision, sometimes longer. Yeah. And that's what you got to do. They heal up beautifully. But that's what you have to do to be able to see this. Yeah. The other thing to consider is uh, another potential failure in tarsal tunnel syndrome or tarsal tunnel surgery is if the patient has a proximal tibial nerve entrapment. Yeah. And so you can actually have an entrapment of the tibial nerve up in the calf yeah, at the soleal sling. This was studied and written about uh, by my colleague Eric Williams uh, up in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. And Eric published uh, a really elegant anatomic study and then also, I think, a small series of patients where they had identified that this was a reason for failure of the original tarsal tunnel surgery. And it's a real thing. We've looked at this in the cadaver labs every time we do one of our workshops uh, that I teach. Um, we look at the anatomy of the soleal sling, and it is a little cuff of tissue between the gastroc and the soleus. And the tibial nerve has to go over this little cuff. And in some patients, you can literally see it's impinging or indenting the nerve. And that's you know an easy thing to fix. You just release that, fry yeah. the edges of it with a, with a bovie and, and open up that area so that there's more room. It can be a challenging procedure because you're dealing with bigger blood vessels that are in the area that you don't want to injure or you may be looking at significant bleeding during the case. Uh, if you don't operate in that area routinely, it may be something that you want to refer on to somebody who does. Yeah. 
But that is somewhat significant source of failure of tarsal tunnel surgery that I think has been misdiagnosed or just completely missed in general. The way you test for it is you have the patient kneel on the chair in front of you and you go about a hand's breadth below the the knee, below the popliteal fossa. And if you push down with your fingers right on that spot between the muscles of the gastroc and they have this, they will go through the roof. And it's not hard to figure out. It should be uncomfortable if you push hard enough on anybody, but there's that fine line there. They shouldn't go through the roof when you push down on that spot. So that's that's a quick and easy way to determine if that's one of the factors of why something failed when you do tarsal tunnel surgery. But it's something you want to catch on the front end, so we do test that before we operate on them. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hussein, for putting together a great, I think, description of what we look for in tarsal tunnel and what the impact can be for patients. <laughs> but we both know it'll just hurt you. <laughs> So thanks for listening. Uh, We are the Pod Doctors. We've got uh, a list of websites to thank for some of the information. If you want to take a look at the paper that we published in 2005 on ultrasound, you can find that online. But thanks again. We are the Pod Doctors, and we will see you next time. Be safe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, And watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, be safe. See y'all next time. Bye-bye.